So this morning, and I'm imagining also for next week, I'd like to explore the theme of emptiness and compassion. And it points to a way of holding our practice and I think inspiring our practice by giving attention in a way to two poles that sometimes seem in tension with each other, sometimes seem mm, to be in contradiction with each other. On the one hand, we can talk about emptiness, and I'll say more what is meant by emptiness, because it's an often confusing term. Uh, But it especially points to the um, lack of a separate self or separate solid phenomena. It points to the quality of reality as essentially impermanent and in flux and deeply interconnected despite our perceptions of things. And this particular teaching, which we find really at the core of the teachings of the Buddha, and I think of many, many other traditions, points to not just seeing that quality of emptiness or that quality of... uh, um, the nature of things, but also the way that that understanding, that deep understanding of the way things uh, are, is closely linked with compassion. So I'll, that's what I want to explore <laughs> this week and next week. One way to approach this is to talk briefly about both of these dimensions of emptiness and compassion. And then, so I want to, in a way, introduce the theme and then give some focus to each of these elements, emptiness and compassion. And my hope is also to give us, um, at the end, some very simple ways to practice um, in the next week and practice here. I'm thinking I may focus a little more this week on emptiness and a little more next week on compassion, but we'll see. The, you know, one of the ways to approach this is to see that there is a very basic claim or finding that we find in the teachings of the Buddha, and again in many, many other traditions, that we don't see ourselves clearly. We don't see ourselves as we truly are, and we don't see phenomena as phenomena truly are, that we live in a kind of a cocoon of confusion. It's a radical claim. It's a strong claim. In the teachings of the Buddha, this is expressed in a number of ways. One way that it's expressed is that in the teachings of why suffering occurs in perhaps his deepest teaching, the teaching on dependent arising, it's 
one way to look at that is to say that the core factor that leads to suffering is ignorance. And it's not an ignorance of not knowing this or that fact or that not, not knowing this um, detail or not knowing um, about some phenomenon in some way, but rather it's a kind of a, a spiritual ignorance. It's a way that we're, um, we typically live without really knowing things for ourselves so deeply. And one of the reasons we practice is to start that process of seeing ourselves more clearly. And I'll unpack what that means, in a, hopefully in a, in a pretty uh, simple way, experiential way. Um, the Tibetan teacher, uh, Kalu Rinpoche, once was asked to summarize the core teachings. This is a great teacher who died, I think, in the late, late 80s, who uh, lived in retreat, I think, over 20 years. One of the great Tibetan teachers of the 20th century. And he said this, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality, but you don't know it. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality, but you don't know it. And that sense of not quite knowing who we are can come as a kind of a shock. But it's it's actually a message that we find in I would say most, if not all, spiritual traditions. I was thinking of the powerful image that, that we find in Plato's Republic. Some of you read in Philosophy 101, <laughs> you know, and might have deeper appreciation for it now. There's an image in Plato's Republic where he says, we are as if transfixed, sitting in a cave looking at the shadows on the wall that are produced by people behind us bringing figures in front uh, of a fire. And the images are then projected on this wall in the cave. And we see the shadows flickering and think that it's real. Many people have pointed out this is a very good image for television. taking the images for real. And Plato says that, that in some way that's a basic confusion and that instead through spiritual practice we somehow in his image we go out of the cave into the sunlight and see things as they are. And then he adds to that, and this is really in a way also very much bringing, bringing together the notion of seeing things clearly seeing, as it were, through the illusion, and compassion. He says, when you're out of the cave, there's a strong temptation just to stay out of the cave, but he says, no, what is your duty? What is your responsibility? It's to go back into the cave and help others. So it's also one sense of that connection of seeing more clearly and and helping others. There's that famous passage in the uh, 
and New Testament. For now we see through a glass darkly. Very much also pointing to that uh, sense that we don't really see things clearly and we live our lives in that way. Here's another way of saying it, in a little more playful way, from our good friend Rumi the poet. (laughs) If you don't know, Rumi is the most popular poet in the United States. Isn't that interesting? Someone from the, what, the 13th century? Persia, the most popular poet in the United States? Interesting. Things are happening. (laughs) And so here's here's, uh, what Rumi says about that... uh, way that we don't quite know who we are. He says, this is from a poem of his called The Tavern, which can give you a suggestion of what he thinks is going on (laughs) with our everyday lives. It's like being in a tavern and not necessarily at the beginning of the evening. (laughs) All day I think about it. Then at night I say it. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. (laughs) My soul is from elsewhere, I'm sure of that. And I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I'll be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent sitting in this anxiety. The day is coming when I fly off, but who is it now in my my, uh, ear? Who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could taste one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I can't leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. So there's that question of whether we truly see things. And what we find in teachings of the Buddha, as well as some of these other teachers, is a sense of how we don't see things so clearly. And I'll I'll get to that in a moment. But there's also that possibility when we come to see more clearly, we might think sometimes, we sometimes have images of wisdom that when we become truly wise, we just sort of sit on a mountaintop and observe the follies of humanity, right? Or we have this distanced perspective, or that it's actually, sometimes it seems like to be really wise, we might be actually kind of dry and cool, you know, and a little bit separate from things. And the suggestion here is that Mature wisdom is also deeply compassionate. This is one way it's said in the Tibetan tradition. This is in a book, um, this is in a book, very interesting book, beautiful book called The Words of My Perfect Teacher by uh, Patro Rinpoche from the 19th century. And it's a kind of like a compendium of some of the core foundational Tibetan teachings, um, which he particularly took from his own teacher. That's why, hence the title. And in, in this book, there's a section where he talks about 
the connection of emptiness and compassion. And this is part of it. He says, uh, one great teacher in Tibet, Drom Tompo, once asked Atisa, what was the ultimate of all teachings? Of all the teachings, the ultimate is emptiness, of which compassion is the very essence. It is like a very powerful medicine, a panacea, which can cure every disease in the world. And just like that very powerful medicine, realization of the truth of emptiness, the nature of reality is the remedy for all the different negative emotions. So seeing ourselves and reality clearly is the basis for responding to suffering, and it actually leads to compassion. Maybe a simpler way to say this is that when we come to see ourselves and the world and others more clearly, we see how we live so often in conditioned and constructed states of consciousness. And that when we penetrate more deeply and see things more clearly, we see both that we are not typically seeing things so clearly and also that that leads to suffering. That we, it's like uh, Shantideva from the uh, eighth century said, I'm I'm just remembering this and I'll paraphrase it. He says, um, the world is beset with insanity because people don't know themselves. That there's some deep lack of, of self-knowledge that leads to, leads to suffering. So how to, how to understand this, how to explore this? I'll talk then first about um, the sense of emptiness and what that means, and then talk about compassion, how they go together, and um, what some simple practices are to explore it. Because this can sound somewhat, um, what, uh, mm, philosophical or even uh, high-level teaching or something like that, but it actually can be very down-to-earth, and that's what I want to help us to see. And part of, part of the confusion might be because of the term emptiness, which can be quite confusing. And it's um, probably along with questions about what did the Buddha mean about saying that there's no solid self? <laughs> the questions about emptiness are right up there. <laughs> what does this term mean? It's, well, it's, it's the, the, there might be better translations, but it's an attempt to say that... Uh, When we see things clearly, there is no separate, independent, isolated self, nor separate, isolated, independent objects or things. And so it goes counter to the way we often take things to be. Kind of the conventional way of looking at things is what? The conventional way of seeing things is to think, I'm here. This is Donald. Donald is a distinct being. There's um, Michelle over here, Jeff over there, and they are separate, distinct beings. There are bells, and there's glasses, and there are doors, and that's reality. End of case. What's all this mess about emptiness? (laughs) 
And that's how we conventionally see the world in that way. And what's being suggested here is that that may be a conventional way of seeing things. And in some sense, it can help us navigate around the um, phenomena of life, but that there's something problematic about that. There's something that, in fact, if we take that in a fixed way, is connected with suffering. So it's a deep challenge to who we think we are. And it's a deep invitation to look more closely at things. So the the word that's translated as emptiness often is uh, shunya or uh, suna in Pali and shunya in, in Sanskrit. And it has maybe more, it ha- could have connotations, I think, of openness or of even of um, interconnection, relativity, permeability. So emptiness is a little confusing in English because it makes us sound, makes it sound like we're talking about emotional emptiness or the, you know, I feel so empty. You know, it's like the theme of romantic rock and roll songs. Since my honey left me, I'm so empty I could die. (laughs) Won't you come back, sweetie, so we can fly up in the sky? That's not an, I just made that up. That's, <laughs> that's not uh, an actual line, but you know it's, it captures the sentiment, right? That's, that's, what, um, that's what 80% of rock and roll songs are about, something like that. You know, like, without you, I'm empty, there's no meaning, and I might as well, you know, give away my computer. <laughs> so, uh, So, in a more down-to-earth way, we can look at that teaching of emptiness and say that it's really a teaching about the emptiness of a separate, independent, isolated self. Or, and that's the main focus, one of the main ways that the Buddha talks about it, and a a, uh, set of isolated, independent, separate objects as well. Sometimes it's said that the teaching of emptiness is the same as the teaching of interconnection, which for us is a more accessible way to get at it, right? That we're actually deeply interconnected and interdependent, but somehow we feel ourselves as being quite separate at times, you know? And... um, this isn't to say that there's no individuality, but it's to say that somehow we fixate and make things way more separate than they actually are, and that this is a, a very fundamental part of our conditioning, and this, it seems to come with human nature. It was certainly there at the time of the Buddha, as well as the time, as as well as our time. Yeah. So. There are a few different ways in which this gets unpacked. One way that, that I'm going to encourage us to look into in the next week is to see our experience as not so much made up of a solid self manipulating objects, but that there's actually a kind of a flow of phenomena 
when we look closely at experience, and that, in a sense, we don't see, when we look closely at experience, a separate self. We don't find that separate self in experience, and we can see that a great deal of our suffering comes from a construction of a separate self in experience. So let me say what that means. <laughs> we've, you know, we've looked at that some, I think, in uh, last year there was a series of, of uh, talks that I gave on the theme of not-self and what, what that means. Uh, so one of the ways that this is taught is by pointing to what are called the skandhas or the khandhas, which are really the constituents of experience. And in meditation, we're invited to look closely at our experience and to stay with the constituent parts of experience. We're actually invited to see when does self arise. We could also ask when we're looking outside, when does a sense of a separate independent object arise and how does that arise? So this is actually asking us to look quite a bit deeper than we often do in our everyday lives. So the model of the skandhas, which is the Sanskrit word, or khanda, which is the Pali word, it is a model of there being five core parts of our experience. And the suggestion is that when we look more closely, we see those aspects of experience continually repeating, and we don't necessarily see a self. And so this is something we can explore in meditation. So what are, what are these five? And it's really saying that when we look closely to our experience and we don't have all the old conditioning there and we don't have fear and we don't have so much um, ways that we um, are maybe unbalanced, when we just are in a relatively safe place, calm, and look closely at experience, we tend to see more this movement of different parts of experience, a flow of experience, and we can see how when we bring in a sense of self, it tends to get in the way of the flow, it tends to uh, fixate things, and it often it leads to suffering. Yeah. On a very simple level, maybe to get a little bit ahead of myself, but just to make this maybe more intelligible, one very simple example would be I'm sitting here with a knee pain or with unpleasant sensations in my knee. And I find myself, and this is a common experience in the beginning of meditation, I am fixated on that knee pain and I'm thinking, and I almost can't, can hardly do otherwise. When's the sitting going to end? Or should I shift it? Or, you know, and all this. And we would say there's a lot of self there. There's a lot of sense of this is my pain. I, can't, I don't like it. I want to deal with it. And what we're sometimes, what we're invited to do is to see if we can just be with those unpleasant sensations on the level of sensation. And in this practice, that's on the assumption that we're not causing damage and so forth. And, and so we learn just to be with sensations, and we, we see how stories develop out of that. You know, it's maybe also, maybe even more clear 
with emotions. You know, I have uh, a certain kind of anger and it may be connected with a lot of stories that really refer to me and my issues and so forth. And I often don't really just stay with the energy of the anger. And partly what we're invited to do in meditation is to see if we can stay more directly with experience, with sensations, with emotion. It's not to say we ignore the level of the stories, but it's very helpful to know that there are stories as opposed to this is real, got to deal with it, and so forth. So we, we learn when we meditate to see more of this flow of experience. And we learn to see in the language of the Buddha, we learn to see how the flow of experience is made up of these different uh, elements, these different, these different components. He said there's, there are five of them. There's form, there's the feeling tone or the evaluation that's, that's pleasant, 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 unpleasant, or neutral. There's the perception, the way we see particular forms. And I'll unpack each of these just briefly. And there's also um, what he called volitional formations, which are thoughts and emotions. There's also consciousness. So let me go through those briefly, because what he's suggesting is that it's, we can actually stay more. If we stay more at that level, it's a different way of seeing things. And so what are forms? Forms are the particular shapes of things. They're the objects. They're the, they're the, the way that basically our senses give us information, the way we see things, feel things, and so forth. With each of those, there are certain forms. Uh, and the Buddha says that's part of more direct experience. Uh, so I can be with, um, I can see, um, I can see a certain shape here. I can see a certain shape here. I can, when I'm tasting something, there's some, there's information for my senses. And the Buddha said that's very basic. A second aspect is the aspect of feeling tone. We have pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral um, qualities with every particular experience. And as we look more closely at experience, we start to see that when I have, let's say, an unpleasant experience with my, with my knee, I may start telling all sorts of stories. I may start resisting it. We tend to resist the unpleasant sensations and try to grab hold of the pleasant sensations. And when we do that, we go off to the races, as it were. There are all sorts of stories and all sorts of complications that happen. What we're invited to do in meditation is to start seeing the origin of all of these constructions and to get back to a more basic level. There's also perception. Perception is especially the recognition based on memory of a particular object. You know, we see this form here and, and we tend to think bell. You know, of course, it could be other things, right? We tend to think bell partly because of the context. You know, if, if I took this like this and my head was a little bigger, it would be a very nice little cap. <laughs> you know? uh, and we, we know by looking at other species, like in scientific research, 
we know that different species perceive different things. There's no bell here independently of human perception. You know, there are forms and colors. We call that bell. Um, you may remember this study of what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain. Frogs don't see bells. I don't know if they hear bells either. I don't think so. What the frog's nervous system does is it gives input in four ways. And this is the, frog, the frog's experience. So frogs don't see the same reality somehow as us. It makes the question of, is there some independent reality with bells and Donald and benches and so forth? You can really ask that question. What frogs' eyes see are four things. One of them is something like a um, large shadow coming quickly into awareness. Possible predator. Get out, of, get out of here. Frog's nervous system receives that input. Out of here. Another possible input is something very small flickering across the visual field. <laughs> Tongue goes out. Fly. And that's, that's the frog's experience. And there are two others I don't remember now. You know, and even human experience. We have to be trained in childhood to recognize objects. You know? When they've done experiments with people who haven't seen in their lives, who suddenly have vision later in their life, they don't see objects. In fact, it's very confusing. They see what the philosopher William James called a buzzing, booming confusion. We have to learn to see objects. Objects are not just given with our experience. And in fact, of course, we know that they're often different across different cultures. That's even the same thing. What the Eskimos have 40 words for snow, right? They don't, do they see the same snow as us? I don't think so. They probably have their 40 words dividing up the data, <coughs> as it were, in different ways. And so perception is a way that we sort of take off from more direct experience and go in all these different directions. It's very helpful to see that more clearly. You know, and then we have the fourth is volitional formations, which basically are thoughts and emotions. And the fifth is consciousness. And what we're encouraged to do is to see if we can come back to that more direct level of perception, of experience really, not so much perception but experience. Can I come back to that experience, which is really seeing the flow of experience without so much the constructions of I and me. So just being with that set of unpleasant sensations and just being with it, being with emotions, seeing also with, and this is what we cultivate in mindfulness, it's the ability to really see the flow of experience without so much turning everything into what um, my colleague Howie Cohn calls the story of me. Uh, not so easy, right? Deep conditioning for everything to go into the story of me. And what we are trained to do here is to see the flow. You know, one very, <clears throat> very kind of um, everyday expression of this, which I really love, that really kind of brings this out, 
is think of times when you were most fully engaged in an activity. And there might be very little sense of self. You might not be at that level, that kind of detailed level of looking at experience, but there might be a sense of total flow. This is what I, the psychologist calls the flow, what's his name? Chekhsonmihalaji, something like that. I can't pronounce his name. Some of you know. Anyone can pronounce his name a little bit better? I think from Hungary, so it's really it's a long, long name. But he talked about flow experience, and we can see this in certain... We've all had these, I think, experiences where we're totally in the flow, and there, what's interesting about it? No self-consciousness. No story of me. It's another version of how we see how... And, and these are actually some of our most profound experiences. You know, I was thinking of a few examples. Um, one is, uh, we find it a lot in sports. Uh, I have a friend named Andrew Cooper who wrote a book called Playing in the Zone. It's about sports. And in, in sports, they use the phrase in the zone to mean like this uncanny, totally unselfconscious ability to maximize one's own gifts in the moment in this full way. To me, this is a sense also, there's an emptiness of self there, if we want to use that language. And I was think, and, and when people start to become aware again of their self, the whole thing falls apart. One very classic example of this, I don't know if you, anyone remembers, but I, I primarily like the National Basketball Association in terms of sports. You know, I, I, I enjoy basketball more than, more than other sports. And in the 1990s, there was a uh, NBA Finals in which Michael Jordan was playing. Michael Jordan was often in the zone. Interestingly, his coach, Phil Jackson, taught their team meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or he had, a, he had a teacher come in, so they were learning meditation, the Chicago Bulls. And those of you who are not into sports, are, you know, you'll have a chance to learn about a different world. <laughs> I know not everyone's into sports, but anyway, in the, um, in the NBA Finals, they, uh, there was one point at which Michael Jordan... Uh, shot seven straight three-point shots without missing, you know. And uh, he and others would say he's in the zone. And then as he went by the scorer's table, and he, I think he knew some people, there's maybe some people sitting there, he went like this, put his hands out, like basically almost saying, it's not about me, <laughs> you know. And, but he was also, at that moment, becoming conscious that something was going on, and he missed his next shot. <laughs> very, very interesting. Uh, I think we find this also in music, you know, um, particularly music in which there's a band or, like, people playing jazz together. The moment they start becoming self-conscious, and I've heard this from my brother, who's a musician, the moment they start becoming self-conscious and have a sense of self or think, oh, that was a really great riff, something gets lost. Right? You know, and there's that kind of way that we um, have that sense. And I think we find that in any of our good work. Right? We find that in probably any work. It doesn't have to be music or sports. It could just be being as a nurse or being as a writer or being as a... Um, um, what, someone work, working in a store where one's just fully with 
the phenomena with the people and so forth. And that, that's another expression, I think, of emptiness that's also quite accessible. And we do cherish those moments, don't we? They're very, very special moments where it seems like something, we're, we're touching something deeper. So how to explore that as a practice, something I'll suggest for next week, um, it's really, in a way, giving a little more energy to our usual mindfulness practice. Can I come back and just be with the flow of experience? Can I watch where my mind starts to um, go into a story of self? And again, it's not saying that this is somehow wrong, but it's very helpful to know when we're doing it. Very, very helpful and important. Can I just be with the flow of experience? Can I keep coming back and be mindful? Can I sometimes have that sense of the flow of experience? What happens when a sense of self comes into my experience? What do I notice? Very, very straightforward practice that we can work with to explore that sense of emptiness. And if you don't want to call it emptiness, you don't have to. Because ultimately that I, I sometimes maybe interconnection is better because there's also that sense in those kind of flow experiences that I was describing, like of being in the zone. There's deep interconnection, especially think of sports. You know, so uncanny. People sometimes have a sense. Maybe I'll bring in some stories next week. People have a sense sometimes of being able to read the minds of their teammates. You know, there's something that really is quite powerful. Um, because, you know, the great uh, Buddhist philosopher Nargajana, he said emptiness is the same as dependent arising, we could say, of interconnection, of the way that everything is interconnected. It's really because we can focus on the lack of solid, separate self, but the other side of that is that there's interconnection. We're interwoven much more than we think. Now, where does compassion come in? And I think I'll be, I'll be briefer here and have, bring in some more material um, next week. Um, where does compassion come in? Partly it comes in when we see the extent to which that moving away from that sense of emptiness is connected with suffering. We can see that in a very ordinary way with those examples of sitting on the cushion, that when I get really fixated on the sensations in my knee, and again, here we have that basic idea I'm not causing damage, but when there's unpleasant sensation that I know is just coming and going, and I notice that I'm getting really tight around it, clenching, telling stories, or again, it might be an emotion as well, when I just can't be with it, we see that's where suffering occurs. Suffering in the body, the clenching, the tightening, suffering in the mind, suffering in the heart. And we start to see how um, there is suffering when we have those kinds of constructions of a separate self. The Dalai Lama said that compassion is especially based on insight into the nature of suffering. And this is really where compassion has that um, 
we could say that intelligence, compassion is also just the empathic presence when someone else is suffering or when I'm suffering. But a main way that we can really explore compassion and its relation to emptiness is in our practice, look and see where am I suffering? And what does my suffering look like? Where does it come from? Really to study moments of suffering and to see the extent to which it's connected with a sense of solid self or could be sense of solid phenomena. I think I'll just give one more example related to compassion, which is is very, very interesting, which points more towards that sense of uh, emptiness as interconnection and its relation to compassion. I think I'll just end with this account, which I have found very interesting. There's um, a book that was uh, just published by uh, Rebecca Solnit, some of you know, called A Paradise Built in Hell. Anyone know this book or maybe heard? I've met Rebecca a number of times, and she's, she's a very brilliant writer, lives in San Francisco. And this book uh, is about mostly uh, people's responses to natural disasters, hence the title, and her finding that the normal human response to natural disasters tends to be altruistic and engender a deep sense of interconnection as if this is our basic nature. There's a crisis and we tend unexpectedly, according to maybe the way the newspaper is right, we tend actually to be deeply responsive and altruistic. And she chronicles in her book the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, the San Francisco earthquake of 1989, she looks at 9-11, which in, is not a natural disaster, but in a sense it comes from literally out of the blue. Right? And she looks at um, some store responses to huge storms and so forth, and she chronicles that, and she looks very carefully. You know, she does, she's a journalist, and she looks very carefully at those. And what she finds goes against the common view she also looks at Katrina quite closely. You know, the model we had from Katrina is that there was just a, a kind of anarchy and mob rule in New Orleans. When she actually looked, she found that that wasn't actually the case, that the newspapers actually were sensationalizing things, as were the, many of the authorities. That it actually, the norm was much more tremendous level of caring and altruistic behavior. You know, and there were people who went into stores, but they did so to help others, to get medicine or to get supplies. And the same thing happened in the 1906 earthquake. Uh, people went into stores to get supplies. And I thought I'd just read a few passages from uh, her book. Uh, and this was from, the first is from uh, an account by Dorothy Day, the famous founder of the Catholic worker, who, who was in San Francisco and was eight years old when the earthquake occurred, 1906. This is what she said. What I remember most plainly about the earthquake was the human warmth and kindness of everyone afterward. For days, refugees poured out of burning San Francisco and camped in Idora Park and the racetrack in Oakland, where, where she was. 
Mother and all our neighbors were busy from morning to night cooking hot meals. They gave away every extra garment they possessed. They stripped themselves to the bone in giving, forgetful of the morrow. While the crisis lasted, people loved each other. And she talks about that. And there's a, also interestingly, the philosopher William James was teaching at Stanford at that time. And he experienced the earthquake and he wrote about it. And he, meanwhile, all the people in other parts of the country were thinking, oh, you must have had this horrible, awful experience. And he was getting all these letters. He actually said the sense of connection and warmth and support was amazing. And people's ability to be equanimous with difficulty was amazing. So I'll just read one passage here. He talks about the universal equanimity that was there after the earthquake. We soon got letters from the East ringing with anxiety and pathos, but I now know fully what I have always believed, that that the pathetic way of feeling great disasters belongs rather to the point of view of people at a distance than to the immediate victims. That there, there was that sense of connection. And what, you know, this to me is important because it really points to that way, and this is what all these teachings are pointing to, that our basic nature isn't of the quality of being a distinct, separate, independent self, but it's much more about interconnection. That our way of feeling separate and having that construction of self is something that is not there when we're at our best. Thinking that maybe at our best meaning when we're most fully engaged in those examples I gave, or that when we're seeing most clearly in meditation, or that when there's most great need, there's much more a sense of being in the flow, of being, of being connected. And so we can see that as we practice, there's that opportunity to look at that more deeply. And we'll explore that more, this whole teaching, more next week but that we can explore this again in these very simple ways of simply being with the flow of experience and seeing when does a construction of self arise? When does my self get thick, in other words? And when can I stay with the flow of experience? And can I train myself to be more in that way? And then secondly, seeing what causes suffering. When do I suffer? When looking closely at that flow of experience. And maybe also opening to that sense of interconnection, just in everyday life. When do I feel separate? And when can I move more to that sense of interconnection? I'll I'll just end by saying that in some of the Tibetan traditions, particularly Dzogchen, It's said that our basic nature has three qualities. When we most deeply feel who we are, it has three qualities. The first they call emptiness, the sense of interconnection and flow. The second they call clarity, the ability to see clearly. And the third is endless compassionate response. And we're here really to train further in moving towards that.
So I'll just stop here and invite uh, responses in a moment. But let's just sit for a moment. <laughs> 